watchmaker, poet, priest, diplomat, spy, arms dealer, inventor, grocer, revolutionary. These are just a few of the professions held by Beaumarchais, Da Ponte, and Mozart. Today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we look at the lives of these three brilliant men and the famous opera that connects them all, Le Nozze di Figaro. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Mozart's Le Nozze di Figaro is back at the Met in an acclaimed production that opened the 2014 season. Designed by Richard Eyre, it moves the action forward in time to a 1930s manor house in Seville, Spain. In a pre-performance lecture from our archives, stage director Jay Lessinger explores this beloved work and the connections between Pierre Beaumarchais, who wrote the play on which the opera is based, Lorenzo da Ponte, who wrote the libretto for the opera, and Mozart, who brought the story to life through music. When I was about, uh, I guess I must have been about eight years old, I was in eight or nine, I was in second grade, and I was in a music class, and the teacher played Einekwan and Nacht music for us. smaller. In fact, he created a small ring watch for the king. 
he was appointed royal watchmaker to Louis the Fifteenth. Unfortunately, the royal watchmaker at Versailles at that time claimed the invention as his own. And mm -hmm. so uh, Beaumarchais was dragging litigation for most of his life. This was the beginning of it. Um, at 21, he was appointed watchmaker to the king. And at 23, he married a 35-year-old widow. Now, this begins a trend also in Mr. Beaumarchais' life. He has a tendency to marry or try to uh, seduce the word uh, married women. Um, but at 23, he married a 35-year-old widow. And he adapted the name of some of the land that she owned. She had a piece of land that was called the Bois Marché. He changed that to Beaumarché, and there suddenly he had a fancy last name. As it turns out, his wife died only a year later. She had typhoid, yeah, so he got her name. Uh, he didn't get her money because the family made sure that he did not inherit anything from her. So he was actually left uh, quite uh, in debt after that marriage. But he was hired by King Louis XV to teach his daughters how to play the harp. And so since he was teaching them how to play the harp, he invented a new improvement for the harp. He improved the pedal system of the harp. Eventually, he became musical advisor of the royal family and then secretary counselor, which was a noble title, which meant that he was in charge of all the royal parks of the king. In 1764, he visited Spain because his sister was involved in a scandal with a, with a man. Uh, while he was there, he arranged a French mistress for the Spanish king. Um, he also arranged the sale of the monopoly, the monopoly of Louisiana to France. He's a busy guy. Amazing. Yep. Yes, he did. Uh, he returned to France, and at the age of 35, he writes his first play, which is a play called uh, Eugenie. Not particularly a success. In 1768, he married again. This woman was Jean-Pierre Bovec. She uh, only she only lasted for two years before she died, um, and he inherited also very little from her. And what he did inherit was her eleven-year-old son, stepson. Because of the quick, the fast uh, passing of both of these wives, he fell under suspicion, and, his, yeah. <laughs> and, and I could see why. A whole little bit. Uh, uh, but it has never been proven that he did anything to these women. And in fact, he would not have poisoned them for their money because he knew what the arrangements were, and he knew that uh, that there was no way he was going to inherit from them if they died, just because of the way their estates were worked out. He then wrote uh, his next op, his next play, which is called Le Deux Amis, which only had ten performances. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the next play he wrote was The Barber of Seville. And this one he got right. And it's pretty amazing when you think that he you know, struggled with two plays to try to figure out how to write plays, but he did learn how to do it. And Barber of Seville, opening night was not so successful. He took it out, revised it a little bit, did a little cutting, and when it was put on the stage again a few days later, a week later, it became an enormous, enormous success. He, in 1775, the king sent him to London to spy. Fighting was breaking out in America between the colonists and the, and the English, and uh, the king wanted to kind of know what was going on. Beaumarchais brought a lot of information back to France, and he convinced Louis XVI that it was very much to his benefit to help the Americans. Uh, obviously, he didn't like the French very much, and this was a way of kind of doing it secretly. He would not come out publicly and say he was supporting the colonists, but he was willing to help underwrite the, uh, the American Revolution at the, at the beginning. Um, he, uh, he helped arrange a fleet of ships to go over to uh, uh, Portsmouth, uh, New Hampshire. And on those boats, he had 200 cannon, 200 pounds of gunpowder, 25,000 muskets, and supplies for 25,000 soldiers. Um, these supplies were worth over a million and a half dollars, probably in present money. And the fact was that uh, uh, Beaumarchais put up a lot of the money for it himself, expected to be repaid by the American government. And the fact is, the American government never did. Uh, and his family was in litigation for many, many years because of that. In 1778, he finally did convince the king to be open about his support of the colonists. Now remember, this is a time when this revolution is going on in America. Things are beginning to become unsettled, shall we say, in France. And the king is being convinced that it is in his uh, best interest to support this revolution. Needless to say, this backfired somewhat in just a few years. France, uh, at that point, entered the war and was followed by the Dutch and the Spanish. And of course, you know, the American Revolution in 1775-1783. At the same time he, this was all going on, he finishes The Marriage of Figaro, the second play in this trilogy that he was writing. But from the very beginning, there were problems with this play. In Barbara Seville, 
it's a rather light comedy. It's based on Commedia dell'arte. It's kind of broad situations. You don't hear all the opera, of course. But in, in, in The Marriage of Figaro, he took this the next step forward. He created characters that were a lot realer. He was a lot more overt in his political commentary uh, and social commentary. And the most important thing is that at one point in this play, Figaro looks right in the eye of the Count and says, maybe sometimes you shouldn't ask questions unless you know the correct answer. He really challenges him directly. That had never happened in Western literature up to that point. If you look at Moliere, you know, the servants are all making fun, but they do it behind the back of their masters. All of these characters made fun of the, of the masters, but they did it secretly. They did it as an aside. Suddenly, here is a play where he's confronting them directly. And again, being very overt in his social commentary. So from the very beginning, this play was not going to be produced if the king had anything to do with it. However, Beaumarchais was pretty clever. He knew that he was, he'd written a very good play, and he started making sure that some of the aristocrats had a chance to read it, uh, and, and kind of uh, awoke their curiosity about this play. There was a lot of discussion, commentary. Finally, the king allowed a private reading in someone's home for 300 aristocrats. And at that reading was Marie Antoinette's best friend, uh, and also the king's brother. They all loved the play. All 300 aristocrats loved the play. And the king could now no longer, uh, 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 basically had about oppression. So he allowed a production of the play to be done, and it was an enormous success. There was something in the literature that apparently there was such a rush of crowd at the opening performance that three women were actually crushed to death. So, uh, so that the demands of tickets were, were so high. Not that we want people to die at the opera, but we certainly would like that kind of demand for tickets. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was produced, it was a huge success, and now it began being published in many, many different languages. Now, again, other countries were not necessarily so sure that they wanted to produce this. Certainly the aristocrats were very worried about it. But, uh, uh, and of course it was worked, it worked its way into Austria-Hungary, where the Emperor Joseph was, and also where Mozart was. Um, the Figaro opera, interestingly enough, premiered only two years after. Well, it didn't take very long for uh, Mozart to read the play and decide that he wanted to produce it. But of course, as we know, 1789 is the French Revolution, um, and that's only five years after the premiere. And many, many people say, uh, when you read literature, whatever it is, the commentary, that this play was one of the wake-up calls uh, that helped instigate the revolution. And this is kind of interesting, because in a way, Beaumarchais is biting the hand that fed him, because he was close to the royalty. He, he, they were very generous to him, but he also understood the change and he understood the realities that the aristocrats were. And ultimately, this play certainly uh, uh, created a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of energy that led towards the revolution. Um, he actually survived the revolution, barely. He was actually, uh, I believe, um, uh, imprisoned in the Bastille, and he got out just a few days before the Bastille was raided and many, many people were killed. After the war, he, at the revolution, he wrote his third play in the trilogy, which is called La Mère Coupable, The Guilty Mother. It's a really interesting play. I had a great, great good fortune a few years ago to direct uh, John Corleano's Ghost of Versailles here in New York for Manhattan School of Music. And that is, draws a lot on the third play. And in that play, the Count has an illegitimate child. It turns out the Countess also has had an illegitimate child by Carabino, who, by the way, is now deceased. And it's very much about the kind of contradiction of morality between the Count and the Countess. It's a very, I think it's a very interesting play. It's wordy, but I would love to see it done on stage in a good production. I think it's got a lot of merits to it. Uh, this was in 1792, and he died in 1799. His debts were finally paid by the United States in 1835, all those years later, but they only paid about $200,000 towards the original one and a half million. So the family never saw very much of it. Rather ungrateful on the part of the American government, especially because if he had not intervened with the French king, we probably would have lost the revolution. Now, Mozart, one could go on for a long time without Mr. Mozart, obviously, but the short version. Mozart began composing at five. At six, he began playing in public. At seven, he toured with his sisters to Paris and London. He played for Marie Antoinette, Louis XVI. Uh, and at 10, he traveled to Vienna with his father, hoping to get a commission for an opera. So now I would ask you, what are your grandchildren doing at 10 years old? <laughs> Maybe time to get them out on the road. At 14, he finally did get to write his first opera, which was Mitridate, and then he followed that with Lucia Silla, 
and at 19, uh, La Finta Giardiniera, premier in Munich. Then he was hired by the Archbishop of Salzburg to become the head of music for the Archbishop. And these are what I call his journeyman years. He turned out an astonishing amount of music under the Archbishop, but he was frustrated because he really wanted to write for the theater. He wanted to write opera. And uh, that wasn't the interest of the Archbishop. So during those years, he wrote symphonies, chamber music, a lot of dance music for the Archbishop's balls, chertos. Uh, he did manage at 24 to have a Domineo produced, also in Munich. And at 25, he resigned from the Archbishop. They had a very contentious relationship. And he resigned, hoping that he would get a court position in Vienna. As it turns out, he did indeed get a job as the Kammer Music, Kammer Musicus, at court, which basically meant he was responsible for more dance music for the Viennese court. Uh, 26, he married Constance Weber, and it was also the year of abduction from the Seraglio. Um, he wrote six quartets that he dedicated to Haydn. Haydn wrote about him, the greatest composer known to me in person or by name is Mozart. He has the greatest knowledge of composition. This was from Haydn, who was considered to be the greatest composer of this time. Between 1782 and 1786, he wrote 15 piano concertos, which he could then perform publicly. This was his way of making a living. This is the Bergtheater in Vienna. In 1786, this is where Figaro had its premiere. Then uh, Don Giovanni, uh, which was done actually in Prague, uh, Cozy in 1790. 1791, Clemenza di Tito and Magic Flute, and he passed away at 35 years old. You know, can you imagine if he had? Survive whatever whatever did in it. And can you imagine what we would have had, what we lost? Now, the third person in this, really, really interesting man, <laughs> as many of you obviously read that. Uh, this is Lorenzo de Ponte. Uh, he was born in Manuel Conigliano. His parents were Jewish. Uh, he grew up in the ghetto near Venice. His mother died when he was very young. He was five when his mother died. And he was bar mitzvah at 13. He was Jewish. However, at 14, his father decided to marry a Catholic woman. And so the whole family converted to Catholicism. Uh, in fact, they were converted by this gentleman who is the Bishop Lorenzo de Ponte. And that is where de Ponte took his name from. He took the church name and he took it from the bishop. Probably a political good thing to do. He was also so committed to Catholicism, at least the family was, that by 1769 they had sent him off to school to study. He and his brother both studied for the priesthood. They could study Latin, but they were not actually study Italian. And the irony is that de Ponte didn't speak Italian very well. He grew up in the Jewish ghetto, so he spoke Yiddish, he spoke the Viennese dialect, and he spoke Hebrew. But he didn't, had never studied Italian, and he wanted to, so he had to do it in secret on the side, because the church actually wanted him to study Latin. Italian wasn't important to him. Now, uh, at this point, just as he was studying to become a priest, he got involved with a very poor noble woman who had a terrible reputation in Vienna and, and Venice, very well known for her bad reputation, gambling, debauchery, the whole thing. Uh, and it really almost destroyed him. Ultimately, his brothers came and rescued him, and they got him out of Venice and went to Treviso, and there he started writing poetry for the first time. Again, we are in the age of reason now, the 1770s. Ben Franklin is well known throughout Europe. Obviously, de Ponte would have read him and not necessarily become completely enamored of him, but certainly knew of his ideas. Um, for his final treatise at school, he was asked to, he wrote a treatise on happiness. And he asked whether mankind had attained happiness by uniting a social system. Well, to the church, this sounded like liberal ideas. And in fact, it attracted the attention of the Venetian Inquisition. He was tried, he was found guilty, he was barred from teaching. Um, and then, just to make it worse, he had another affair with a married woman, and that was kind of the end of it. Uh, they, uh, they threw him out. He was banished from Venice for 17 years and told that if he returned, they would lock him in a room without a window and no light for seven years. Now, he first went to Trieste, where he did writing and publishing. Now he was getting involved in translating. And then he received a, a, a rather anonymous invitation to go to Dresden 
to for a job at court. But when he got there, he found that the job didn't exist. There was some kind of skullduggery going on. Um, but he, he was being lured actually by one of the noblemen who really wanted him dressed in view of his reputation as a writer, literary uh, expert. Um, and so he spent some time there. And then when he left, this man had connections at the court in Vienna and wrote a recommendation for him to Salieri, who was, of course, the court composer. You know, it's, it's not what you know, it's who you know, let's be honest. <laughs> so he uh, joined uh, Emperor Joseph. Uh, he went to uh, the court in Vienna and was introduced to the Emperor Joseph, who was an incredible figure at the time. When he first got there, he was introduced to a man named Anastasio. If you know that name, Anastasio was a man of letters, a great writer at the time, and wrote many, many opera librettos. So he looked at uh, De Ponte's poetry. He started reading some of the poetry, in fact, at a large public gathering, and invited, and this was unusual, invited De Ponte to finish reading the poetry. That's, this was really a sign of favor. And it really uh, attracted the attention of the noble uh, people, who were aristocrats who were at this function. And it kind of established De Ponte's reputation in, in Vienna. Now he met uh, Joseph II. Emperor Joseph was extremely liberal at his time. Somehow, again, the age of peace, and I think had an influence on him. He was a very educated man. Um, he actually allowed Jews for the first time to be absorbed into society. Uh, he encouraged the Jewish community. In fact, there were rules that forbade the Jewish community to do things that would separate them. So they couldn't dress differently. They were expected to dress like uh, the rest of society. But this was, for its time, extremely liberal. Uh, and, um, of course, this somewhat aggravated the church. They were not so happy about it. But he stuck to his guns on this. He really wanted to break down social barriers. Uh, he even took the time to go to Paris to meet Ben Franklin. This is the Burgtheater in Vienna. This is actually a postcard from 1900, but that theater's been there since the 18th century, or since the uh, 1800s, uh, 1700s. Uh, the Ponte was given the post of poet of the Italian theater in Vienna. Now, as part of that position, he was supposed to write librettos. He'd never written a libretto. He'd never written anything like that. Never written anything for the theater. He'd written some good poetry. But the king liked it so much, and he decided it would be good to have somebody with a clean slate take over that position. So he gave him the job of a poet of the Italian theater in Vienna, which was in the Bird Theater. The first libretto he wrote was for Salieri, and it was a disaster, huge flop. Salieri said, I will, I will cut my fingers off before I'll ever take another libretto from that man. <laughs> now, thankfully, he changed his mind a little bit later. Um, the emperor, however, was very encouraging, where politically and socially he could have been fired for having that flop for Salieri. The king actually still believed in him and said, write another, write another libretto. And so he did. Uh, but at that point, he decided the best way to learn how to write a libretto was to study librettos. And he went into the theater library, and he began looking at things that had been written in recent years. And he was really horrified with how really terrible these librettos are. Now, you're all opera lovers here. You've seen you know, these revivals of obscure 18th century operas that we all feel we need to do to keep variety out there. But none of us could ever understand what the plots are for some of these things. Uh, and he realized that even in the comedies, that the comedies were really kind of lame, libretto's didn't make any sense, the music was an integral to the, the plot, and the music didn't somehow go together a lot. Um, and he realized that this had to be looked at. And so uh, he wrote a new libretto with us for a composer named Martin Soleil, who was very, very famous at the time. This was a big hit. And because he was a favorite of the emperor, and the show was a big hit, he just garnered more enemies. Yeah, Vienna was really cutthroat. Um, in 1783, he met Mozart for the first time. And Mozart was still struggling at that point for attention. From you know, we all know the story about Mozart. The fact that you know we're all told that Mozart died in abject poverty. The fact is Mozart actually made a pretty decent living. He just spent more than he made. That was the big issue. He didn't know how to control. You know, keep an eye on his money. But the fact is he was making a good living. He had carriages. He had horses. He had a nice apartment uh, for a good part of the time. But he didn't have really the acceptance of, of the most important people. He was considered to be secondary. He was not Salieri. Um, uh, so De Ponte, uh, again, because he had this great success, great success with, uh, uh, with the, the most recent opera, um, he did want to write for Mozart. He, he recognized how great Mozart's music was. Now, De Ponte wrote memoirs later in his life in which he pretty much takes credit for pretty much anything important of the 18th century. Um, and one of the things that he takes credit for is Mozart's fame. He says, through my exertion alone, the world is indebted for those fine vocal compositions 
which he afterwards composed. I was determined to use my favorite chord for the interest of Mozart. And in fact, in later years, he would pretty much kind of make everything, especially in America, you know, libretto, you know, libretto was more important than Mozart's music. Um, now, by 1785, Mozart had read the marriage of Figaro and decided he wanted to make it into an opera. Uh, but the emperor had, he didn't like Louis XVI, but he picked up on the signals and decided to ban the play. And he didn't, wasn't sure that it, an opera should be uh, produced on it. Uh, however, there were copies of this play everywhere. It was translated into multiple languages. Everybody was reading it, even if it wasn't being done on the stage. Duponte was sure, because of his connections, that he could convince the emperor will allow it to be produced. And so they set to work. They wrote it quite quickly together. In fact, there's stories about them being in buildings across the alley from each other. And they would just yell to each other across the alley through the windows. Um, at least that's what Defonte says. Uh, when uh, the emperor realized that the opera was being written, he demanded to hear the score. Defonte brought the score for him, and they played it for the emperor. And the emperor loved the music and decided to allow it to be done. Now, by that point, the the play it had been modified quite a bit. First of all, the secret of adapting a play to an opera is that you have to cut a lot of the play out. That doesn't always happen, it seems to be, with some new operas we have. that plays and they just set all of it to music and they go on for a long time. But there is a real art, and the Ponte understood that art, to how to trim and reshape a play so that it made a great opera look better. This was one of his great gifts. And he had, by that point, had done it. So a lot of the politics had been softened, though the confrontation between Figaro and the Count still existed. Uh, in 1786, the opera had its premiere in Vienna, and it was an enormous success. People really recognized in the libretto that there was cohesiveness in this libretto, really for the first time, that this was a very sophisticated comedy by opera standards, and that the plot didn't have a lot of kind of silly and incongruous plot devices that a lot of comedies up to that point did. It makes it very unique, and it really set a standard for operatic comedy after that. Later, even Beaumarchais approved of Duponte's uh, adaptations. He felt it was a terrific adaptation of his, of his play. 1786 was a pretty busy year for Duponte because not only was he writing this libretto, but he was also running the theater, where he, which 21 operas were staged that year. Ten were new productions, and he wrote six of the librettos. So he was a busy guy. His next opera, which was also for Soleil, Martin Soleil, was Una Cosa Rara. This was a, even a bigger success than Marriage of Figaro was. But Mozart said, don't worry about it. In 10 years, no one will remember it. <laughs> and he had his revenge. Because if you go to Don Giovanni and the dance music in the last scene, he quotes Cosarara. And Leporello says, Here's it, says, Ah, bravo, Cosarara. He was making fun of that piece. And by the way, it shows none of you knew that, right? So Cosarara didn't last very long. He wrote, in fact, right after that, he wrote three librettos at once. He wrote one for Mozart, he wrote one for Salieri, and he wrote one for uh, uh, Martani Soleil. So he was, he was really enormously successful. Don Giovanni had its premiere in Prague. Figaro was premiere, I mean, had its Vienna premiere, and then it was done, of course, in Prague. Uh, and then it was so successful, even more successful in response with the public than it had been in Vienna, that Mozart decided to do the premiere of his next opera in Prague. Uh, and when he arrived in Prague, they were already playing the music of Figaro on the streets. Uh, uh, you know, in the little uh, uh, the organ grinders, and people were singing, and it was on sheet music. Uh, he wrote Don Giovanni there, had a huge success, um, and then he revised it for Vienna, made some changes, added some arias, cut some things, and another big success in Vienna. This is 1787. 1788, revolution is going on, just about to happen in France. There's a big political shift going on all across Western Europe, and by this point, Emperor Joseph is becoming far less tolerant uh, much stricter about all kinds of uh, rules and regulations. Um, of course, there is the July 
July 14th is the fall of the Bastille in Paris. And ironically, at the same time that's going on, they're writing Cosy Fantutte uh -huh. in 1790. What's so interesting about Cosy is that it is an original libretto. It's based loosely upon kind of gossip of the time and may be influenced by some early librettos. But unlike most operas of the day, which were based on something else, really, uh, De Ponte pretty much created this opera, its own story. Um, as it turns out, Emperor Joseph died shortly after the premiere of Cosi Fantute. And the problem here was this brother, Leopold, this is a double portrait of, of uh, uh, Joseph on the right and uh, Leopold on the left. Leopold was much, much more conservative than his brother was. Remember, these are all the children of Maria Theresa, mm -hmm. and they are the brothers of Marie Antoinette, mm -hmm. who is now, by 1790, dead. Uh, no, sorry, she's in prison. She's not dead. So Leopold shut the theaters down. Ponte resigned his job and decided it was best to get out of Vienna. Uh, also, Mozart died in 1791. So now, uh, de Ponte is in Trieste, and ironically, remember this man is a converted Jew who's now a priest. Um, doesn't stop him from pursuing women, obviously, and he meets a nice Jewish girl in Trieste and marries her. <laughs> so, uh, and her name was Anna Grahl, uh, and uh, they went to Paris hoping to be received at court. But by this point, Marie Antoinette was in prison, in prison, and they realized that it was dangerous to go there. They went on to London where he actually worked at the London Opera for 12 years. And they had five children while they were there, but by 1800 he was bankrupt. This happened a number of times too. So in 1805, thereabouts, they left and came to America because Nancy had family here. And they settled in all places, Brooklyn. And while he was there, he invested in a grocery store, which was not a success. He befriended Clement Moore, you all know as the author of The Night Before Christmas. Uh, he started a school for young women. His wife started a school for young. Sorry, uh, he started a school for young men. His wife was a teacher for young women. They went bankrupt again. So at that point, they joined other family in Pennsylvania uh, in 1811. And unfortunately, there they were not financially successful. But 1819, he was invited to teach at Columbia College, which is now Columbia University. And uh, uh, he, by the way, was the first Jew and the first priest to ever teach it. <laughs> During the time he was in New York, in America, he taught several thousand students. He rubbed elbows with the most important people in New York society. He introduced Dante to the American public, essentially, for the first time. He published his memoirs, which we all believe is more fiction than fact, but we do make it very um, he sold his library of 26,000 Italian books to Columbia University and it established their Italian collection. They still had those books, apparently. He had another 600 books that he gave to the New York City Library, and that established the Italian collection of the New York City Library. He produced Don Giovanni in New York for the first time, uh, and at 84, he helped build the first opera house in Manhattan, which unfortunately failed within two years. That's De Ponte. Uh, he died. Uh, he died at, eight, eight, at eighty-nine years of age in uh, eighteen thirty-eight. Uh, so, yeah, marriage figure out. By the way, there's a test on all of this on the wall. <laughs> um, I use some of the pictures from the production we're going to see tonight, which many of you are sure aware. This production is updated to Spain in the nineteen thirties. Uh, so here we have Count Almaviva. Um, and uh, Susanna, Count Albaviva tonight is Peter Matei. Um, he is the Grand Corregidor de Andalusia and the Spanish ambassador to the court of St. James in London. Um, his wife, Almaviva, I love this. This is a rehearsal picture from a few weeks before. It was in the New York Times, and I love this picture. Anyway, Countess Almaviva, this is Rosina from the Barber of Seville, uh, and former ward, wife of the Count, and former wife of, uh, wife of Dr. Barclay. Figaro is the Count's ballet and the former barber of Seville. should tell you that where the name comes from is really interesting. Figaro is a transmogrification, as it were, of Fils Caron. Fils Caron means son of Caron, Caron Fils in French. But uh, the, uh, I guess the, the way they would have said it was Fils Caron, actually they would have dropped the S, it would have become Fils Caron, and Fils Caron became Figaro. And that's how the name was invented by Boucher. Susanna, who is uh, the Countess's maid, of course, engaged to marry Figaro, and then Carolino. Then we have Marcellina and, uh, and Don Bartolo. Marcellina is what's called the Chatelaine 
of Aquas Frescas. Aquas Frescas is the name of the, of the estate, these fresh waters. Uh, this is the Count's estate. Uh, she's the chatelaine, which means basically she kind of runs the household. She's not a maid, but she keeps an eye on things. She's kind of the keeper of the keys. Uh, she was former governess, we know, to Rosina from Barbara Seville. And uh, Dr. Bartolo is uh, a former guardian of Rosina. Now, all of these people have something against Figaro at this point. Um, uh, and then uh, I unfortunately could not find online pictures of some of the other characters uh, posted yet. But this is the whole cast of Opening Night taking their vow. And we have Barbarina, the daughter of, uh, of the gardener Antonio. Antonio, who was the gardener there, Don Basilio, who was the priest, and Don Curzio, who was a judge. And these are all the characters. And by the way, this is cut down from the original cast list of the play. Uh, Beaumarchais really condensed things a lot. Now, normally the opera sets takes place in the 1780s. This production, as I said, will take place in the 1930s. Um, but we are on the grounds. Everything takes place within the house. Um, and I understand that one of the really interesting and fun things about this production is on a turntable. So some of you already seen it? Yeah. So as the action continues, the turntable turns and people go from room to room. It's a great, great device. The structure of it's really interesting, and they're not doing this literally, but what, what I've done Figaro a number of times, and I've tried to recreate this idea of the, 19th, of the 18th century theater. 18th century theaters had a very specific floor plan on stage. There were always down right and down left two doorways in those theaters. If you've traveled in Europe, you've seen them. Sometimes they would access boxes, but sometimes they would access the stage. Um, these were very much figured into the floor plan, I think, of Figaro. That's those, that, that door, those doors on either side were the door of the count, countess's room, the secret entrances, the garden niches, they could be used for many different things. The other thing about this opera is that it plays in, in its original structure in a small room and then it goes to a big room, small room into a big room. So the first act takes place in a hallway, really, that connects the, it's a, it's a laundry room or a sewing room that connects the count and the countess's room. Those days they slept separately, but they like to have a, like a secret hallway if the husband wanted to visit the wife. Unfortunately, he hasn't been doing that for a while. And what, in fact, he's doing is he's allowing Suzanne and Figaro to move into that hallway, which means he has absolutely no intention of going to visit his wife. It's become very clear to the countess, Suzanne and Figaro, what really is happening. But we're in a kind of smaller room. Then we go into the countess's chamber for Act Two, which is a rather large room. And interestingly enough, Act Two has a big finale, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Um, it was really felt that the original structure of this was a two-act opera. In fact, they are doing it that way tonight. So that we do the first scene with Susanna Figaro, and then we go right into the next room. So that the first act, as it were, ends with a big finale. And the second act, as it were, which is really Act 3 and Act 4, ends with a finale. Because if they had meant it to be separate acts, there would probably have been a finale in each of four acts. There are only two finales in the piece. Then after the intermission, uh, we are, in theory, in the Count's study, which is a small room, theatrically. Then we go for the wedding into, into a larger chamber, some kind of a reception room, which would then op you know, can open into a larger room. We don't usually see it done this way. I'm curious. I haven't seen this production, so I'm curious to see how, how Richard Eric uh, uh, handles this. But Barbarina's aria, most productions you see, she's out in the, she's out in the garden with a pen. Well, why is she out in the garden carrying the pen? I mean, she went out into the garden to carry the Actually, she's supposed to be in a hallway in the house, going from one part of the house to another. So again, the opening of that scene, of the fourth act of the opera, should actually take place in a rather intimate space. And then when uh, Figaro goes out of the garden, actually Marcellina goes out into the garden after her aria, which is not always done, it's not really done here. Um, when we go into the garden, which again is a larger space. So there were really a, a kind of set of rules, as it were, for how plays uh, were structured scenically in this period, because of course they did everything with drops, so it's very easy to change scenery. Um, uh, you all have the synopsis in front of you, and I could go through the very complicated synopsis here, but there's the basic things that you have to know. Um, there's the droit de seigneur. Uh, when the count married the countess, he uh, decided to abolish this right of the Lord to sleep, or essentially deflower the virgin servant on her wedding night. Now, the fact is, this did not really exist in the 18th century. This is a device that Beaumarchais kind of cooked up. It may have gone on in the Middle Ages to some extent, perhaps, but the feeling is, I mean, by the, by the 18th century, it's not to say that servants weren't sleeping with maids. They undoubtedly were. But this idea that it was the right of the Lord to do this. So it's really a theatrical convention in the 18th century to include that. Um, uh, but now, of course, the Count is somewhat regretting this because he's actually 
taken a real liking to Susanna now. And so he's hoping that maybe he can convince her to privately reinstate this, uh, this practice. Uh, the fact is that he's chasing after a lot of girls at this point. He's chasing after not only Susanna, but Susanna's niece, Barbarina. And Barbarina is, in theory, about 13 years old. So he's, uh, he's obviously having some kind of a midlife crisis. Um, uh, uh, and uh, Suzanne, of course, is afraid that he's, you know, he's going to force his way on her. Um, the Count has turned to Don Basilio, his lawyer, uh, sorry, his priest and music teacher, and to Don Curcio's lawyer, to help him, also Marcellina. Because Marcellina has an argument with Figaro and Suzanne. Uh, she doesn't want Figaro to marry Suzanne because Figaro borrowed money from her. And she either had to pay him the money back or yet she had to marry him. Now, this woman is quite a bit older than he is. He's not interested at all. He's been avoiding it. But now the Count is going to use this as leverage to try to really confuse the issue for Figaro. Uh, and hoping in a way that the law will, will, will judge in Marcellina's uh, uh, favor so that Figaro will have to marry her and then get him out of competition with Suzanne. Um, now we have Carabino. Carabino is 13, 14 years old. Um, those of you who have had young boys know what happens around 13 or 14, and hormones kick in. Uh, and, and his hormones are really kicking in. <laughs> so he has been chasing Barbarina around. Uh, he is, uh, he comes and basically starts making a pass at Susanna, uh, rather overtly, and it turns out he's also madly in love with his godmother, uh, the Countess. So, uh, and unfortunately, he has this really, really bad habit of turning up just where the Count doesn't want to see him. So, in fact, the Count had tried to pay Paul and Barbarina that morning while her father was out in the garden. Um, it turns out he didn't know the Carabina was hiding under the table, and he found it. Uh, and as that wonderful moment in Act One, it turns out yet again when he makes a pass to Susanna, who happens to be hiding in the room by Carabina. Uh, the other thing is that for some Odd reason, everybody wants to dress Carabino up as a girl, kind of with a fun plot device. But basically, uh, the Count is so angry at Carabino that he's banishing him. He's going to send him off to work. Basically, he's hoping he's going to get killed. The fact is that in La Bianca Pablo, this actually comes to pass. After Carabino does actually have an affair with the Countess, the Count is away in La Bianca Pablo, the Count is away for many, many months. Uh, marriage again is falling apart. She ends up having an affair with Carabino and becoming pregnant. She's full of guilt about this. And when Carabino realizes what he's done to her, he's basically destroyed her. Uh, her he could destroy her reputation. He does go back into battle and allows himself essentially to be shot. She does give birth to that child, but for all intents and purposes, the public believes that it's the Count's son, the Count's child. That's what they tell everybody. The Count, of course, knows the truth and holds it against her for the whole play until she finds out that the whole girl that's been running around in the house has to be his daughter. So that's, uh, that's comedy, by the way. Um, now, Marcellina, again, as we said, has this, uh, this debt that she's going to hold over him. Bartolo is mad at Figaro uh, because he helped the Count marry Rosine in the first place, but Bartolo hoped to marry the Count instead. Uh, and um, and, Ar and Marcellina finds that she has this really uncontrollable emotions towards Figaro. She can't quite understand it's lust, it's, it's love, it's something. She doesn't know what it is. And if you don't know what it is, I'm not going to tell you, you'll find it. <laughs> um, uh, now, Bartolo is only too willing to help. Marcellina is only too willing to help. And this is kind of where we are when the opera starts. Um, tell you something interesting about that pin. I love this little bit. It's a bit of costume history. In the, 19, in the 18th century, they didn't have buttons much. They, they just didn't. They used pins. So when women put on these corsets, uh, you know, you see those big court gowns that women wore. By the way, they didn't put those on until 5 or 6 in the afternoon. They wore much more comfortable those during the day because those things were really tight and hot and uncomfortable to wear. They weighed a lot. So they would be pinned. The corset would be pinned. So when the countess says, here, let me give you a pin, it's not like it's so odd that she's got a pin. She has dozens of them. <laughs> well, we don't think of it. We all think, well, that's just an odd little thing. Why don't she just have, have a pin stuck in her dress? But actually, it's a wonderful detail of the period that all women have. So it's not a big deal when she offers uh, a, a pen to, uh, to seal the letter that, that she's sending to the count. Uh, that, that's where she finds the pen. Of course, that's the pen that Barbarina manages to lose. And they would have been rather nice pens. It would have been a pen with a pearl at the end or something. So there's a reason that Barbarina's upset that she's lost that pen in the fourth act. What 
I think is the miracle of this piece. A couple of things. And many, I think everything in it is a miracle. Every number is so fresh and so wonderful and so perfect. And Mozart never writes more than he needs to write. You know, he was accused in abduction from the Seraglio of writing too much. And so they said, you know, the emperor said, too many notes, Mr. Mozart. And he said, no, just, just the right amount. But by now he understood theatrical economy. Uh, you know, the opera is still, I think tonight was a good three and a half hours longer than intermission. Um, and, and, but he, but, but it never seems that way. I don't know. I've done a lot of Figaro's. I've been to a lot of Figaro's. And when they're good Figaro's, you don't feel like time is passing slowly by any means. Um, the second act, the finale of the second act is really miraculous. And it has everything to do with the Pontes setting up the structure, telling the story in such a way that this, this pattern could happen, the structure could happen. And I'm sure Mozart had an influence in the discussions. Because it's certainly, it, it, we've gotten deep into the act. Uh, the Count thinks that um, Carabino is hiding in a closet, which actually Carabino is doing, but Countess is denying it. So we have this great trio in which he's accusing his wife of hiding a lover in the room, in the other room, in a closet. Susanna comes in through another door, one of those two doors in the proscenium, and she's down there listening, and this is a terrific trio while she figures out what's going on. They leave, Count leaves to go, because the Countess will not give him the key to unlock that closet. So they leave the room, and um, Susanna now can take the opportunity to get Carabino out of that closet, and as we all know, jump out of the window into the garden. Um, all bedrooms, well, all major rooms of the house at that time would have been on the second floor, which on the first floor. Um, uh, certainly not in a house like this. So uh, we have this very delicious duet. Uh, between the two of them. It is very fast. It is very hard to do because not only do you have to be singing this music very, very quickly, but you got to be running around the room, you know. And I have rehearsed that scene many, many times with the soprano and the mezzo to get it to look right and yet let them keep an eye on the conductor while they're running around the room. It's a very, very tricky moment in the opera. Now the finale starts in earnest. Carabino jumps out. The count opens the door to the room. He unlocks it with the key that he has to open the main door. And he says to the countess, uh, you know, open the door. Now the, now the finale starts. It's a wonderful duet in which she basically says, open that door, whoever's in there, come on out. Uh, when they finally open the door, who walks out? Susanna, who has hidden herself in Carabino's place, totally flummoxing the count. And we go into a trio, duet into a trio. Um, as things seem to resolve themselves, the count figured now he has to apologize to his wife because he accused her falsely, it was just Susanna. Um, who bursts into the room but Figaro? Now we have a quartet, <laughs> duet trio quartet. And Figaro comes in not knowing what's going on and pretty much puts his foot into it and almost, basically, it becomes very clear that there was some shenanigans going on um, and the Count starts to question him about a letter that he found. Uh, and we're going to the, into the death of that quartet. Now, Antonio, the gardener, puts Percy We go into a quintet. I think it's just brilliant. Duet, trio, quartet, quintet. Moving right along. And he walks, he comes in because when Carolina jumped out, somebody jumped out the window and jumped right on the geraniums and destroyed the pots. So he comes in to carry on, which now alerts the fact of the count that somebody was in that room and somebody has jumped out the window. So Figaro manages to get rid of Antonio. And there's an awkward moment. We're now back at the quartet. This is an awkward moment between Figaro and the count when they're trying to figure out what's, who's telling the truth, what the truth is. Uh, and the suddenly Marcellina, Curzio, uh, sorry, Marcellina, Bartolo, and Basilio storm in. And now we're into a septet. Um, and when I do it, I haven't dragged on Curzio in just so we have more people on <laughs> And so suddenly here we are in this fabulous, fabulous finale. All of Mozart's finales are about 20 minutes long. They never seem to be that way, but if you time them out, they all end up being the big ones. Don Giovanni finales, this finale, they all end up being about 20 minutes long. The structure is brilliant, the music is brilliant. And understand that this is only two years after the Ponte wrote his first libretto, which was such a, such a flaw. He really figured it out by now. The other revolution in the opera, and I love this moment. You know, in the play, as I said, Figaro confronts uh, uh, Count directly, caused a lot of stir. Well, he does the same thing in the opera. It's modified, it's not quite, it's, it's still overt because it's, it's direct, but it's very short, not, not quite the confrontation it is in the play. But in the fourth act, when there's a whole series of arias. Now, if you do the opera uncut, there are five arias in a row. Marcellina has to have her aria. Mm -hmm. 
Then Basilio comes on, and he has his aria in which he says, if you act like an ass, you can escape danger. It's a very silly aria. It's very cute. In quegli anni in cui va il poco, la malfranca radon, e bianchio lo stesso fuoco, fui quel pazzo cor non son, fui quel pazzo cor non son. Then the count, then, uh, who was that? So Barbarina has her aria, the aria about the pin. It's short, but it's an aria. By structure, everybody had to have an aria. And now Mozart's getting that worked out. Now, my understanding is they're not doing the Marcellina with the Silvio aria tonight. So Figaro comes on to sing his big aria, basically to the audience saying, then watch out for women and not to be trusted, because he believes that his wife is coming into the garden having an affair with the count at this point. What's really interesting about it is he uses the full orchestra. He uses the strings and woodwinds. This is the first time in operatic history that a servant had an orchestra accompany the rest. You can't find anyone anywhere. Mm -hmm. Servants got secco recitative. They were lucky. They got a harpsichord and a cello. <laughs> if they were lucky. But at this point, Mozart gives Figaro, not the whole orchestra, but a good part of it in his recit. That had never happened before. And I'm convinced that in you know, the 1780s, when that started happening in the theater, there must have been some nobility going, wait, 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 wait. kings, queens, gods, goddesses, get orchestra, what's going on here? So there was, he, he expressed the revolution in music, which I think is really quite amazing. Now, Susanna comes in for her aria after that, and she has the orchestra as well, but the statement is made with Figaro's entrance. Details there. As I said, there's. A, I'll be asking you questions. I'll find you in the lobby. But if you have any questions uh, or thoughts, now so we have a few more minutes. I'd be happy. Yeah. Uh, wasn't he sort of known to Ponte as the Don Juan of his time? Yes, it's very interesting. <laughs> I, 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 I mentioned this, uh, that, that um, he he definitely was having affairs with uh, also having affairs with married women or a lot of different affairs. I think by the time he married Nancy, he kind of settled down. But up to the point, he like would, his Venetian absolutely. Career. Well, that's why he—that's why he was banished. One of the reasons he was banished, and they had to protect him. Um, the irony is that my, from what I read, he didn't have any teeth by the time he was thirty. Uh, he went to a dentist for a cure. He didn't have any teeth. He went to a dentist for a cure, and basically, what they gave him was like nitrous oxide or something, whatever it was. It was acidic, and it basically ruined his teeth. So here's a relatively young guy with. Good teeth, and yet he seemed to still have something that women yeah. wanted. Right? <laughs> it's kind of creepy, but, but uh, you know, it's, uh, um, I guess by then maybe I wouldn't teeth like Ben Franklin, uh, George yeah, yeah, Washington, yeah. I don't know. But, but uh, uh, you know, from the pictures, it doesn't seem all that attractive. But I think he was very, he was so uh, urbane, so brilliant, and I'm sure that was very interesting. But yeah, he had a real, real, real reputation. However, he said he liked to compare himself to Casanova, and they had met each other. Of course, in, in, in Prague, yeah. 
But he said that the difference between he and Casanova was that he really loved the women he seduced. <laughs> Casanova did. He said he just had this bad habit of falling in love with the women. So, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how Mozart and the Ponte work together with Mozart has a theme first, or Monday, but uh, you know they say how would they come out? Apparently, there is not much written down about that. You know, unlike Verdi, for instance, who did a lot by writing letters because he was not always in close to his librettist. The Ponte and Mozart were there, very close to each other, so they were having the discussions orally. Uh, we have some information from letters that he wrote to his father, which gives us some sense of how uh, how how progress was going. Uh, but not much about that. But apparently there was a lot of discussion. They both knew the play very well. Uh, clearly the Ponte was good at learning how to distill this down into a structure. Uh, for, for instance, one of the things I think the Ponte decided was that in the play, the Countess appears in the first act. Mm -hmm. But he decided to hold her till the end of the second act, which makes a much greater moment for her entrance. Because he understood, yeah, it's amazing that in a very short time he figured out how to write it. Now whether that was his idea or Mozart's, we don't know. In your productions, how do you handle the problem of the abruptness of the forgiveness at the end? Yeah, it's well, it's interesting because you know, as time goes on, that gets more and more of a chuckle. Or much, you know, as we get more less romantic and more cynical. Um, what I what I usually do, frankly, is tell the singers to take time. In other words, that we put a big fromada there mm -hmm. and give the count a moment to kind of go. So we see him going, got it. The other thing is, and again, I'm curious how they do this today. One of the things that's very often ignored in productions is the change of clothing. And I think it's very important. The tradition always was that the Countess would dress up like Susanna, but at the end of the opera, she would come out dressed like the Countess. Like, I don't know, she had 15 people in the niche to help her change. Of course, it wouldn't happen. I think when the Count sees her in Susanna's dress, he sees the Rosina he married. He sees her dressed as a, not a peasant, but as a middle class. He does. I think part of the issue in their marriage, frankly, is that she has tried to be a good aristocratic wife to him, which she has to learn how to do. She was not raised an aristocrat. She's a ward. She's middle class. So she has to learn how to wear panniers and how to wear white wigs and how to wear all of that, how to present herself at court because he's a diplomat. She has to learn all of that formality. And I think that puts a distance between the two of them. There's almost an artificiality that happens. And I think part of it, I don't think it justifies him at all, but I think when she comes out of that niche at the end, she comes out of the garden house, and she's dressed like Susanna, who of course he's been flirting with, he sees that girl that he fell in love with. And I think that helps to make that transition a little easier. I think the danger there is to run right into it, uh, as opposed to finish, you know, there's this little, da -da 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 this little rushing figure in the orchestra, the chorus is saying, oh my god, it's the Countess, oh my god, it's the Countess. And then right away he says, Contessa Perdona, you're going to get a laugh, because please, he's lying through his teeth. But I think the secret is to take a little pause there and give him the silence and the moment to kneel very slowly and look at her, and think, because he's so humiliated at that point in front of his servants, in front of everybody. So time is the essence. Singers are funny about that. Some conductors are too, they're, they're afraid of silence. But I think silence, as it is in, in straight play, silence is very
That was Jay Lessinger talking about Mozart's Le Nozze di Figaro. The opera makes its season premiere at the Met tonight, and performances continue through January 19th, with a rotating cast of audience favorites, including Luca Pizzaroni, Mariusz Kvetchen, Ildar Apruzakov, Isabel Leonard, Eileen Perez, and Nadine Sierra, all under the baton of maestro Harry Bickett. To keep up to date on everything happening at the Metropolitan Opera Guild, subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter at metguild.org. There's a lot going on in the Lectures and Community Engagement Department, from singer interviews to pre-performance lectures, masterclasses, and continuing education classes. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you so much for listening.